Welcome back to another month's episode of Energy Voices. This month, we're tackling political change and how individuals and organizations can make a difference in their political environment. This is an absolutely action-packed show, and therefore, I'm going to save you a long intro and kick right into This Month in Energy featuring Student Energy's new community manager, Kate Karan. Hey, Internerds! My name's Kate, and I am Student Energy's newest community manager. I will be taking you through this month's most relevant energy stories from around the globe. So here's what happened in August 2016. Costa Rica has just celebrated over 120 days of 100% renewable energy and counting. After being 99% renewable last year, they are well on track to remove fossil fuels from their energy mix completely by 2020. The Australian National University has developed a solar dish with an incredibly high sunlight to steam conversion rate. Instead of photovoltaic solar panels, which convert the sun's rays directly into electricity, this so-called big dish reflects them back at a receiver, which converts water into steam. The steam can be used to power a motor or stored for longer periods as molten salt. This latest breakthrough receiver has an amazing 97% efficiency. The tech giant Apple has received the green light from Irish national planners to build a 30 megawatt onshore wind farm. The power generated by this wind farm will be used to power an Apple data center in the west of Ireland. DONG Energy has been granted consent for development of the Horn Sea Project 2 offshore wind farm. Situated 89 kilometers off the east coast of Yorkshire, England, the 1.8 gigawatt project will consist of up to 300 turbines. The project of epic proportions, Horn Sea Project 2, dwarfs all other offshore wind farms planned globally to date. A new venture spearheaded by Elon Musk will create house roofs made entirely of solar panels in the sweeping expansion of Tesla's clean energy ambitions. Tesla has finalized a $2.6 billion deal to buy solar power company SolarCity to produce solar shingles, photovoltaic materials that will be fashioned into the shape of a house roof, changing homes around the world into energy generators. To find out more energy stories like these, go to studentenergy.org on the first of every month to keep up to date with all things energy. That's all from me. Cheerio! Next up on Energy Voices, I'm very excited to welcome Jane Club, who's the founder of Bold Nebraska and has been appointed as one of the individuals that's been responsible for uh, the, the rejection of the Keystone XL pipeline. So welcome to the show, Jane. Thanks for having me. So I have to say, you're, you were at the very top of the list when I asked uh, Mike Hadima from Greenpeace Canada. I said, I want a really spunky person who can talk about the impact that an individual can have on energy and environmental issues. And you were the, the first name that he mentioned. So I, I, I take it that that's an honor for you. 
Uh, Mike Kudima is my favorite Canadian organizer by far. Um, <laughs> so yes, it's quite an honor. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So the this episode is really about um, giving our listeners and, and the youth that, that pay, pay attention to our work um, a sense that individuals can have a, a disproportionate impact on energy and environmental issues. And so um, I think that you're a living embodiment of someone who as an individual has been able to um, really shape some major energy and environmental discussions in our times. So for, for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with your story, um, can you give us the, the two-minute story of sort of you growing up, your the, the founding of Bold Nebraska, and the work that you guys have done on the Keystone XL pipeline? Yeah, you know, I did not grow up with kind of an environmental background. I actually grew up in Florida, which is many miles away from Nebraska and very different. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of cowboys in Florida, more beach surfers, if you will. So I grew up in a very different kind of culture, but um, I married a rancher, which is how I moved to Nebraska almost 10 years ago. And the pipeline was kind of an immediate threat against the Sandhills, which is where my husband's family homesteaded their ranch. Um, And it's a really fragile part of our state and where the Ogallala Aquifer is very close to the surface. It's a very unique part of Nebraska. And you know, it's one of those moments when you become an environmentalist, you know, by accident. And um, all the farmers and ranchers felt the same way. But we were emotionally pulled into the issue first with, like, just this reaction to protect our home and to protect our water. Um, but then it became much bigger in, about climate and the transition to clean energy and many other issues down the road. And, and when you mentioned getting emotionally pulled into the issue was was there the sense initially that you could stop the project? Did you did you have the confidence and the belief at the very beginning that this was a project that you as a group could stop? You know, when I talk to activists, I, you know, tell them that I did. I, you know, from the very first meeting that I went to, when we were still, like, trying to learn, I, I didn't even know what tar sands was yet, but I went to a meeting where farmers and ranchers were giving feedback to the State Department um, this was very early on in the fight, May 2010. And at that meeting, I immediately said to myself and to a young rancher afterwards, like, yeah, we got to organize because we can beat this thing. Like, it was not a question. And I never thought that we would lose. And I think when you're up against such a big corporation, or even if you, you're taking on a, you know, a uh, local kind of ordinance fight, maybe to get more solar, you know, put on rooftops, you have to believe you can win if you're going to win. Mm-hmm. And and how do you, so if you look at the pipeline map of North America, pipelines had been approved sort of without question for decades mm-hmm. and decades and decades and decades. And this was the biggest, most expensive, well-financed one of them all. And so how, how do you go from uh, a small posse of ranchers in Nebraska mm-hmm. in an area, sort of, and no offense to Nebraska, but it's not at the cultural heart of America. It's not something that's thought of as being the, the opinion leader of the nation. How do you translate what's happening there into 100,000 person act, actions in DC and across North America? Like, How do you, what's the pathway and how do you go from that small group into a disproportionately large uh, impact on this project? Yeah, and that was one of the things that when we first decided to take on Keystone that I immediately thought about is how do we connect people, even in, even in urban Nebraska, so in our big cities of Omaha and Lincoln that aren't, you know, that are far away from the pipeline route, how do we get them emotionally 
kind of involved and want to stand up and fight this pipeline and stand with farmers and ranchers. So, you know, I have this belief that you have to get people to tell their stories in order for others to kind of emotionally connect with them. So I started to look for a rancher who really embodied all the other farmers and ranchers who were fighting it. And his name was Randy Thompson. And he's kind of a quintessential tall cowboy rancher, you know, older and ran the sale barn that everybody kind of brought their cattle to to sell. Um, and so, you know, he was this kind of visual, like as soon as you walked into the room, you trusted him, but he also with videos and, you know, pictures kind of was the, the reason why we were fighting this pipeline. Um, so we created like a whole social media campaign around Randy called I Stand with Randy and had t-shirts and had this like cartoon image of his face um, that became really popular and was printed on t-shirts and yard signs and bumper stickers. And, you know, that really helped because that was something visual that pulled people in creatively. But then they started to learn about Randy. Then they started to learn about pipelines. Then they started to learn about risks of water. And then they started to learn about climate change and what's actually happening up in Alberta to the First Nations. And so Randy was the entry point for folks. And and what was the point where you saw it tip? Because uh, I loved some of the, the the pieces that Bill McKibben wrote sort of post-rejection of the pipeline where he mm-hmm. said that even he admits, he's like, we were late to this project. This was not this was not an issue that we were the, the forebearers of. And so how do you go for, what was the tipping point where you, you start getting a bit of groundswell of support and then it sort of became bigger than Bold Nebraska and bigger than even Nebraska itself? Mm-hmm. There were... There were several kind of touchstone points, like a year into the fight, that I think kind of indicated to me as an organizer that this was definitely going somewhere. And I'll just describe two of those. One of them was definitely the arrest in D.C. You know, arrests happen all the time. Civil disobedience, that's nothing new. You know, 10 people get arrested and call it a day. But Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein and several others, you know, put out this call to really the elders of communities, you know, it wasn't to like us on the route or, um, you know, it was more to like, you know, the gray haired who could get arrested and it wouldn't affect their kind of resume building. (laughs) But the letter was really beautifully written. And I think for us in Nebraska made us feel like, I didn't know Bill McKibben at the time, it made us feel like we mattered and that people were concerned about us and our water and our livelihoods. And, you know, when you live in a rural community, that doesn't happen. You don't get celebrities kind of knocking on your door every day. So, you know, for us, it was this awakening. And farmers and ranchers, some of them had never even gone to a plane before, let alone get arrested in front of the White House on a political issue or an environmental issue. That's two big um, firsts in a day. First plane yeah, ride so and first like, arrest. It was kind of a big deal. And then, you know, 350 was so brilliant in the way that they orchestrated this, where they had, you know, over 1,200 people get arrested over two weeks. And that was definitely a tipping point. That obviously got the White House's attention. Um, You know, the second was more kind of a cultural moment here in Nebraska, where TransCanada was airing TV ads in the Husker football stadium. And Husker football, for those that don't know Nebraska, is like religion here. You know, we don't have professional football or any other teams. We have our college football team. That's it. That's that's the number one sport. It begins and ends with football season at the college level. So um, when TransCanada first aired their ad, the stadium, like, spontaneously booed. 
And so we use that as an organizing tool. The next game, we have these corn fingers created. Normally, you wave kind of fingers, you know, <laughs> funny things in the football stadium. But ours said, you know, stop the pizza pipeline and no oil in our soil on the other side. Um, and literally, then the third game, the ads were canceled by, um, you know, the university and said that TransCanada didn't fit with their values and it was too political. They should have never allowed them in the first place. So when we knew we had, like, the Husker football stadium that never goes political engaged, <laughs> we knew we were on to something. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, I sort of mentioned this up front. A big part of the, the objective for us in having you on was to give some inspiration to people who may have been in a position or may be in a position that you were in, say, 10 years ago. Um, and, and one of the things I want to ask you about is, is some of the, the, the behind-the-scenes stuff. So people see mm-hmm. the 1,200 arrests at the White House. People see um, or, or you see the videos of Stand with Randy. You, you see some of the very public-facing components of that. But this, at the end of the day, was still a political decision. This was something that belonged and, and, a, and a judicial decision. So what were some of the ways that you were able to turn the sort of emotion and the ground, so the grassroots support for this, into political allies? Like, how did you make that transition happen specifically? Yeah, you really have to give people who are very activated in the fight something concrete to do on a regular basis. And it can't just be sharing a Facebook image or tweeting or um, finding an online petition. So we started to create kind of actions that people could do in their communities, whether they live in urban or rural parts of our, of our country, um, but that also were directed not just at President Obama. I mean, we certainly did lots of stuff directed at him. But we actually started to target the kind of mid-level staff members at the State Department and the mid-level staff members at the White House. So we created this postcard campaign where we had landowners who had hand-painted signs on their property where the pipeline would threaten. You know, and they were all very creative. We did them kind of with college students. And so... Some of them said, like, no pipeline, no problem, and they were all these fun signs. So we had a professional photographer take pictures of the landowners with those billboards and then um, turned them into postcards. And, and why had – yeah, go and ahead. Why, why target the, the mid-level folks? So, so obviously Obama hears the pros and cons of every issue in the most public way possible. What, what was the insight as to why you went after the mid-level staffers at the state and federal level? We wanted to go after the mid-level ones because they're the ones who are actually writing the reports, right? They're writing the briefing summaries. They're um, writing the technical analysis of the environmental review. And we wanted them to hear from people who were really concerned about this pipeline. Um, And normally they don't, you know, get mentioned at all. You may not even know who they are. So it actually took us some time to even figure out who they were and their address, you know, inside the State Department or, you know, the office next to the White House type thing. And, and how, um, how would you do that? So is it uh, how do you find those, those people and, and how do you get a sense of who's writing those reports? Yeah. So some of it was us literally calling the White House switchboard and asking um, which staff at the there's there's a kind of environmental arm to the White House called the Council for Environmental Quality. Um, so we asked, you know, the list of those staff members and their job descriptions, uh, which, we, you know, was public information. And so we got that. So that was one way. Um, but for the State Department, that was a way tougher nut to crack. Like, it's obviously a lot of high security over there. And so we started to ask 
people like with Sierra Club and Greenpeace who lobby on a more regular basis, like who they were meeting with because we didn't have those connections. And so they gave us kind of those disabled staff members. Um, so that's, you know, those, those are the two ways we went about it. And, and did you find, so you mentioned Greenpeace, Sierra Club, Bill McKibben, and 350.org. Um, did you find that those groups were in complete support of you? Was there ever any disagreements? The, I think you see in general the perception is that, oh, this uh, everyone's united and, and supportive with each other. But is that actually the case, or is there ever any sort of disagreements that you would have on messaging or approach or tone with some of those other groups? Mm-hmm. No, there were lots of disagreements, but it was always done in a way. I mean, we were in the trenches with each other for six years, and so we built up a tremendous amount of trust and respect with one another. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there were disagreements often on messaging. Which do we lead with? Do we lead with property rights? Do we lead with sovereign rights? Do we lead with water? Do we lead with climate? Um, and so, you know, at different stages of the campaign, we were leading with different messages. Some of that was purposeful to keep the other side from, you know, kind of pigeonholing us. Um, the other point, the other piece of it was just like practically, like the more we learned about Keystone XL and Tar Sands, like it, it changed our messaging because we were then becoming more educated about it. So then we were then educating others. It was a kind of cool process that was happening. And that was happening even in the national environmental groups as well. Um So, but, you know, there were big disagreements on strategic times of when we should be putting pressure on the president. Some groups, you know, had a lot more influence in the kind of political relationships and didn't want to risk the president not getting reelected in 2012. And so we're asking all of us to kind of calm down for six months during the election. Um, And so some groups kind of didn't participate in six months, you know, in 2012. But then groups like Bold and 350 were like, you know, went full in and doubled down on actions. So we just, when we had disagreements, so we faced them. We talked about them. They were tough conversations, especially early on when we were all getting to know each other. And I think that that's super important for young people who are, you know, taking on a a project or a fight. Um, There will be disagreements. And if you don't have disagreements, that means you're not really working on hard stuff, right? (laughs) Like you should welcome those disagreements and work through them together. And and so back to some of the, the work that you were doing. So you, you sort of articulate that um, the approach of targeting the mid-level administrators and the people sort of crafting some of the um, policy briefings and documents that are influencing the senior politicians, maybe continue down that path or give us a sense of what were the what were the things that you were able to do that you started to see that you'd gotten under the armor a bit and that you'd started to find some flesh with some of the messaging? What were those pieces where you really started to get a sense that um, this whole idea was gaining traction? Mm-hmm. You know, normally at these meetings, like whenever you're fighting like an environmental project, the government at any level, local, county, state, national always have these like hearings right for public input type thing there's always some type of hearing and normally those hearings are pretty stale and um normally like a bunch of people in suits kind of reading prepared remarks we took those hearings very seriously and used it number one as an organizing tool so we organized all along the route and in different communities and even online showing people what the hearing was going to be like and that you know how much time they would have at the microphone. Um, But then we created like super, uh, you know, visuals that people wore at those hearings in order to create a sense of solidarity. So we had 
pipeline fighter armbands and this kind of thing. But when people were going to the microphone, they were telling their personal story. They were always including some factual piece about, you know, our sins of water and that kind of thing, which is important to train people on that they should include some facts in their testimony. But they were also telling their personal stories of why they were doing this. And that you could start to tell with the State Department staff in particular was really affecting them. I think sometimes we forget that these mid-level staff members are human beings, right? They have family members, they have kids, they have spouses, they have loved ones. And when you start to hear so many people's personal stories, it starts to get you on an emotional level. And that certainly was a strategy that we used. Mm-hmm. And and so let's fast forward maybe to the end of the, the Keystone XL story. Uh, I, I was curious to know, what was the moment that you heard that the project had been rejected? Mm. So it was November 6th, uh, 2015, and it was like 7.30 in the morning, and Bill McKibben called me, and um, normally Bill texts or emails, so I knew it was something important, <laughs> because he never calls. <laughs> you know, he, he loves text. Um, so he said, I have only one minute, because I'm boarding the plane, um, and you can't tell anybody, but I wanted you to know first that the president's rejecting the pipeline today. <laughs> Um, and that was it. Like, he was like, I love you. The door's closing and I'll, I'll try to call you once I land. Um, (laughs) so, you know, I am like still in my pajamas. I had just gotten the kids off to school. Um, so, you know, I did call somebody else. So Kenny Bruno, who was like the leader of the table that organized all the groups on the pipeline. So we could get a press conference ready. So I immediately went, I like, I didn't have a moment to like emotionally absorb it. Um, until later that evening. I immediately went into press conference mode. We got to get a share graphic created, a thank you petition up for the president, like all of those tasks. Um, but that later that evening, we were landowners, and uh, tears definitely flowed. That's amazing. Yeah, I I think it was actually Mike Hadima that I I saw him uh, sort of uh, tweet out a screenshot of his email, and I think when the <laughs> announcement was officially made, there was nine different organizations that sent out the congratulatory <laughs> email. So that must have been a fantastic moment. And and, and so so. Was there ever the the sense of of what's next? So so you go through this whole process, and you, you said it. This was a six year fight that spanned two mm-hmm. presidential terms, and, and sort of defined a generation of environmentalists. And and for all intents and purposes, the rejection is in place now. And so, what was the sense of of uh, was there a, a happiness that it was over? Was there a sadness that it was over? What was the the sort of moment after when you realized that this was real? Yeah. I mean, we're still going through those emotions, honestly. Um, you know, there, there's still kind of pieces left of Keystone that we're dealing with in Nebraska. Landowners are still fighting in court to get TransCanada to pay the fees that they were supposed to pay on eminent domain cases because TransCanada lost. So, like, you know, so there's ongoing kind of legal stuff that we're still wor- working on in state. But, you know, we were seeing each other kind of on a, on a weekly basis for six years and had developed really close relationships with people. And we're also in, like, constant campaign mode, right? I mean, we were doing, you know, three or four serious actions a month, and that's, you know, an intense campaign kind of, you know, momentum to be in. So there was certainly kind of this, like, wall that we all hit that that part of our lives is, like, over, and we're still kind of grappling with how do you, 
like celebrate that. You know, we've done some, we've planted trees along the route for the landowners, like where the pipeline would have gone. Each landowner got a tree and, um, you know, we've done some other kind of symbolic and visual things, but, you know, I still think all of us are still like, what do we do? You know, and, and we are turning some of that energy into helping other states fight pipelines. So we're actively working with landowners in West Virginia, Virginia, and Minnesota, um, you know, those are like the, the big ones that we're working on now in Iowa and North Dakota. There's a pipeline fight that really gets a lot of heat in our country right now. So we're great on the front lines of that. Um, but not at the level like we were in Nebraska, where we were like living and breathing it every day. Yeah. And and so any last thoughts for, for our listeners and for some of the youth that are just starting to dip a toe in the water of, of not necessarily environmental activism, but our organizational purposes helping facilitate this transition to a more sustainable energy future through technology, through business, through finance, through policy, through activism? Uh, any thoughts that you would have for youth that are passionate about making a difference and, and making their dent in the world? You know, I think one thing is don't be afraid to be creative. I think sometimes when we get into campaigns, they get into this, like, checkbox mode um, and become pretty sterile and only online. Um, you know, art and creativity and music, poetry, street theater, like, all of that I think is important in order to build movements and doesn't get validated enough. Um, and so I find that young people bring a tremendous amount of creativity and I see sometimes kind of older folks in movements kind of clamping down on that a little bit. And, and I say, go for it. Like, don't be afraid to be completely out of the box and take different ways and different strategies in order to tackle an environmental problem or in order to, in order to start pushing your city and community into, you know, putting up more solar and more wind. Um, so that would be it. And the other one is, don't think that you have to have a huge budget. I mean, Bold started on only $2,000 a month. We eventually were able to write more sophisticated grants and got more resources to do bigger things. But those early days were some of the best moments that we had because we were forced to be really creative and, and be with people kind of face-to-face, which then those relationships obviously paid off in the long run. Perfect. Well, uh, I just want to say a massive thank you uh, on behalf of myself and all of our listeners. We just really appreciate you taking the time to to walk us through some of your story and, and how you've made an impact on the political process as an individual. Thanks for asking me. Uh, we love Canada, so keep it going, man. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Take care, Jane. Talk to you soon. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Nathan Cullen, who's the Democratic Reform Critic for the NDP Party, and who has been through five election cycles in the Canadian federal politics political system. Uh, so Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be on. So the, the reason that we wanted to have you on today is that this month's show is themed around how political change happens. So we we often hear that uh, that the we, we all understand and know the role and importance of policy and a healthy democratic process, um, but it's something that people feel increasingly separated from that process. Uh, and so uh, the, the sort of overall goal I had was to, to give you um, a platform to sort of engage with our audience and with our listeners and, and with youth of the country um, who are interested in participating in that conversation. So to, to kick us off, um, 
maybe I'll, I'll just ask you to give um, a bit of background on your story and your involvement and your interest in getting involved in politics. So, so why did you want to become a politician and, and to pursue um, the de- democratic process as your career's work? Well, the, the short answer is I didn't. I had been involved in politics, I suppose, but not the big P politics. I was a lot of nonprofit, a lot of uh, development work overseas. And, and for the most part, growing up, I grew up in Toronto and, and felt that issues that I cared about, because there's a lot of things that young people care about, were, were better handled and better addressed through um, not necessarily the ballot box. That was that was my perception, that, that, that politics felt very estranged for me. I grew up uh, low income, and that wasn't an accessible part of the world. It seemed like somebody else, and that politicians just appeared like a lot of yelling old white men on television from time to time and not very relevant to the things that I want to see change around the environment and poverty issues and women's rights in the city. So I spent years in, in that field and enjoyed it immensely and also came to appreciate that what happens at the ballot box and who forms government is hugely critical to those very same issues. And essentially, not stumbled, but was encouraged, encouraged, and, and, and turned away from elected office and was only until the point where I thought I could combine my nonprofit beliefs and experience with the political process, run a campaign like a nonprofit and run on issues that were deep uh, uh, in the hearts of people I cared about. Then I was convinced that this was a good way to go and was fortunate enough to win my first time running and then for a subsequent time. So wasn't, um, I suppose, the most typical path to the House of Commons, uh, yet I think it, it still guides me in my thinking that I, I, I do introduce myself as a politician, but not necessarily first and foremost, and try to think of myself as a community organizer and activist primarily. Yeah. And, and in your opinion, what is the role of a member of parliament? So you've been now elected by, by your constituents mm-hmm. five separate times, and so what mm-hmm. do you consider your role to be in this political process? First and foremost, it's a voice. It's uh, the, the way we've set ourselves up is that we have democratic representation. People come together, pick someone to go forward. And I hope we choose a, a new way to pick someone to go forward in this democratic overhaul that Trudeau has promised. Um, and that you represent people, and not just those that agree with you. And this is always a tricky balance in politics because there's a natural inclination to spend time as we all want to do with like-minded people or people who have supported you. But in writings like mine, Northern British Columbia, it is a huge mix and diversity of views about how the world ought to be, uh, all the way down to, you know, straight casework, what we call casework, where someone's just got an issue with the federal government and needs an advocate because the system has failed them and they haven't gotten good service or a fair decision. Uh, Those are the, the two primary roles. Yeah, and you you brought up a really interesting point in the beginning there, where you said that uh, you represent um, there's there's partisan voters in your riding that are, mm-hmm. will probably vote NDP uh, with or without you, and there's people mm-hmm. who voted for you as an individual, and there's mm-hmm. people who will never vote for you uh, because right. of the party you represent or the individual that you are. And so mm-hmm. the, the the question I want to ask you is is and, and part of the overall theme of this episode and discussion is is giving people a sense of the tangible ways in which they can 
influence politics and policy. And so do you have any examples of where sure. someone who is not an active NDP supporter or an Nathan oh. Collins supporter yeah. that you yeah. have been an advocate or, or, or how they can interact with you? So some, some specifics on, on what that interaction with their elected member of parliament looks like. Sure. First of all, uh, most people are bad at it. Most people don't uh, fully walk in the shoes of somebody who's sitting in elected office. And no kidding, you know, why, why would you? <laughs> Yet, if you want something from uh, someone, it is really a good rule to try to understand their perspective as well as your own. And so one of the things that we spend a fair amount of time doing in our conversations is not just talking about the issues people want to raise, but also spending some time talking about where is the leverage? Where do you where do you get more push with government? Where do you uh, get a p- politician or a group of them to sit up and listen more likely? We, I always set expectations. Well, there are some things people want that are very unlikely to happen ever because that what they want would would cause massive disruption and not necessarily be good for a lot of other people other than them. My point though is that if you spend uh, a little bit of time with folks talking about how uh, politicians are motivated, because I think a lot about it. I'm trying to motivate and influence politicians all the time uh, around things like re-election, media, social media, uh, having uh, other people support the idea that you're promoting rather than just something that feels more obscure. It can greatly uh, influence and enhance the chances of you being happy at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And, and do you have any examples where uh, an individual or constituent of yours has done a particularly oh, yeah. good job of that? Yeah, there's a, a group of First Nations I work with in the, the northern part of my riding. Uh, the nation's called the Teltan. And they, I remember sitting at a, you got to picture this, this is in far northern British Columbia, very, very remote, uh, salmon-based cultures, mountains, huge gorges, beautiful, beautiful country. And some people who were fighting a very, very bad coal bed methane project where they wanted to frack for gas at the headwaters of their three of the most important rivers in all of British Columbia, actually. And yet they were very small, impoverished nations. So what they did was they developed as one elder called the Cowboys and Indians strategy, where they spent a lot of time with unlikely allies, some of the ranchers, some of the hunting groups, some of the other folks who spent a lot of time disagreeing about a lot of things, but came to strong agreement when it came to protecting the rivers, protecting the salmon and the habitat that uh, support that salmon. So by by doing that, it, it made space for the politicians, in this case, the provincial government who we were working on, to find enough constituents that they needed to appeal to. And it was a complete win-win for them to make a decision to not allow, it was Shell in this case, to exercise their permits and spend a lot of time with the company itself. So. Again, knowing those motivations and the leverages, the, the points, the, the, the soft spots for a multinational company, knowing where a provincial government was going to be interested in listening just two years before an election, those kinds of things were very smartly done. But it took a lot of upfront work. We talk about allyship and bringing allies together all the time. It's hard work. It's a lot of cups of bad coffee. It's a lot of working through and making concessions uh, to find that common ground. And if you do those things, it just greatly enhances, rather than it being a schism type of thing where you're only appealing to a very marginal group of people and then going to a politician and saying, there are 10 of us that really want this thing. It's going to be wildly unpopular for you. 
but the 10 of us believe it's right, therefore you should do it. You, you may win. You may get that politician, that bureaucracy to move for you. You're just really not helping your odds very much. And so I saw the Teltan with very little money, with very little political clout initially, move huge mountains and protect something that I think all of Canada, certainly British Columbia, should be grateful for. Mm-hmm. And and I want to sort of take the, the opposite side of that coin. So I think that's a fantastic example of where um, sort of the the friends of my enemies or the friends of me and, and sort of putting together a broad coalition uh, of people that are aligned can prevent um, uh, a project or, or a particular idea from taking place. Are, mm-hmm. are there any examples where um, there's needed to be policy change or needed to be some specific new action taken uh, where you've seen there be particular success in the democratic we're, process? We're in the midst of it right now, I would argue, around democratic reform. And it, it, it's not an example I want to use to say we've hit success, yet we've had some small successes along the way towards a larger goal, which is reforming the way we vote in Canada so that every vote is treated equally and every vote counts across the country, regardless of who people vote for. It seems like a fundamental thing, yet to get the Liberals on board with where the NDP and the Greens have been for years took a lot of work from some uh, very grassroots activists, along with academia and some key journalists. So knowing uh, that the campaigners have been at this for well, a generation or two, and knowing that they simply couldn't have um, pockets, but had to have a wider group of people supporting this, and then... Some of the campaigns, like Lead Now, like Fair Vote Canada, at Broadbent Institute, these are these are key organizations who were very targeted in which Canadians they were talking to about this, so that the Liberals understood in the West, in key parts of Toronto, yeah, East Coast, of maritime, urban, these were key seats, these were key targets, and they were able to motivate and move a number of Liberal activists to say, make this promise that we're ending the system now. We're in the midst of actually seeing whether that will come to be or not, but yeah. it was a very uh, a successful campaign in moving a party. And and for maybe just take a, a half step back for, for listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with this democratic reform process, can you give us the, the sort of 30 or 60 second overview on sure. where we've been with the first past the post system and where the conversation has gotten to to this point? Yeah, this, this was the system we picked up at Confederation. So before we invented the light bulb, we came up with this system. First past the post means if I get one more vote than the next person, I win. We had people sitting in the House of Commons with 32%, 34% of the vote of their constituents. So 70, nearly 70% of people didn't want them, but that's how first past the post works. Ourselves, the Greens, um, and now the Liberals all committed in the last election that we would change that system. It got badly started, but we reformed the committee. And we're seeking out what are generally called proportional systems. So if a party gets 20% of the vote, they get about 20% of the seats in the House of Commons. It ends the false majorities, where Mr. Trudeau, like Mr. Harper, won government with less than 40% of the vote. It also makes sure that every vote, when counted at election time, is represented in the House of Commons, regardless of who you vote for or where you vote. So that's as, that's as short as I can make it. That was, <laughs> but it, that was perfect. It, it, well, it, it's essentially trying to bring us up to where most successful democracies uh, have arrived, which is to have a more evolved and advanced voting system. Yeah. Have you seen that cultural context change around the idea of democratic reform? Is this something that there's still uh, a lagging dialogue on? Like, where where are we at in this uh, Canadian conversation around democratic reform? We're not evolved enough yet, I would argue. I mean, 
there is a, a group of Canadians that deeply believe in this and campaign for it and fight for it. But they're a very relatively small number. Most folks didn't wake up this morning wondering about proportional versus all-in voting systems and, and the democratic reform process. That being said, uh, the work right now, culturally speaking, is to be able to connect how we vote back to every issue that Canadians did wake up thinking about this morning. The state of the economy, do they have a viable job for themselves or their kids? Do they, do they feel like the environment is moving in the right direction? First Nations rights and titles, all of those questions are present and all of them rest upon how we vote, how we put people into office and how we kick them out. And having a strong voice when you head to the ballot box, being able to say, this is the issue I care about, this is how I'm going to vote, and my vote's going to matter, mm -hmm. uh, is the eventual goal. We want to increase the power and range of people's voices in our democracy, and that starts at the ballot box. Mm -hmm. it, it will make parties a lot more responsive, I think. It also may lead to a lot more power sharing, which in our history as a country has produced our most progressive and lasting policies, like Medicare, like employment insurance, pensions, the flag, you know, these things that we, we, we really quite like uh, have come out of times when Parliament has had to share power between parties rather than just have one uh, government and one prime minister's office run the whole show. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing that I find really interesting is the, the juxtaposition of this exercise and activity within the Canadian political system and the binary options that you have in the American political system where uh, you have a two-party system and you have to, even if you're a single-issue voter, uh, you have to take all of the bad with the good that you choose mm -hmm. for your candidate. And, and I mm -hmm. think the, the, you brought that up in a very articulate way where this idea that if you have a single issue that is your most dominant issue as a voter, um, democratic reform and proportional representation allows for that to um, sort of percolate into the, the ether of the political process. Whereas right now, uh, I've always hated the idea of strategic voting because yeah. it sort of bastardizes yeah. the political process that you're sure. actively voting for something you don't believe in because it's slightly better than another option where you <laughs> feel like right. your vote will have some sort of an impact. And so, um, Well, imagine, just, imagine going in and you, you need to buy a new phone. And they say, well, you can't have the phone you want, but here's three phones you don't want. Pick the one that's slightly less terrible. <laughs> I mean, I don't think the, the, the store would last very long because people say, well, no, but this is the phone that has the options that I want. Well, yeah, I know, but it's not really available where you live. Yeah. I'm sorry, you're in Toronto, you're in Vancouver, we don't do that. Yeah. It's, it's exactly what happens in the ballot box for a lot of people. Or people just don't go at all because they say the person I like or the party who I most affiliate with, their policies, they never win here. They're never going to win here. I'm in southern Alberta. The Greens are never going to win, so why bother, right? So in 2016, the idea of having options from what we buy to how we eat to where we live is a culturally assumed thing for a lot of people, except when it comes to politics. And this, this, you're very right. The system that we have, this first-past-the-post, was designed when there was only two parties imagined because we inherited a system from England where there were only two parties. I was just talking with the British, and they're going through a very similar electoral debate right now because there's no longer just two parties. That's been true in Canada for a long time. We just haven't caught up to it, that people want to vote different ways. I think what you mentioned in your question, the influence from the U.S., having this big, loud neighbor to the South with this two-party dysfunctional system influences a lot about how Canadians think. I've talked to many voters who think they vote for the Prime Minister, mm -hmm. that they went into the ballot box and ticked a name beside Trudeau or Harper or Mulcair's name. And I say, well, no, 
that's not how we work, but they watch a lot of CNN. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, what the feeling is. And that's just absolutely not the way we work. So a lot of this is just about basic civics education, but mostly it's about saying when you go out to make choices in your life of all those things that matter to you, it should also be available to you when you hit the ballot box, that you should be able to make a choice free and clear, not just have to pick between two lesser evils. And, 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 and that, to me, is where we end up on this thing in a good way. And, and so uh, back to the sort of the original framing for this interview around how individuals can have an impact on the political process. The, the, the reason we were so interested in having you on was that you're, you're working at changing the rules of the game to allow for more of a distributed power structure and more voices to be heard. Uh, and and I, I like the framing of, well, you may not care about democratic reform when you wake up in the morning, but you may care about marijuana legalization or climate That's change right. or right. jobs or that sort of thing. Uh, and by reframing the rules of the game, those issues can now come to the forefront. But it, it's what, what are the challenges in getting people motivated to take up the mantle and say, okay, first let's do this and then we'll do the thing I care about because well, our, our society isn't great at that. Yeah. Well, there's there's a very good group called, I think they're called Make Every Vote Count. They're a coalition, well over 100 organizations from the YMCA through women's groups through um, all the First Nations advocacy, like groups right across the spectrum about issues that they care about. And I've talked to a number of their membership as to why they're in, encouraging their own uh, part of Canada to get engaged. And they say, well, it's, it's not just electing people, it's holding them account once they get in, right? So look at something like marijuana legalization, that Trudeau is sort of crab-walked a bit on. The, if, if that was the issue that you voted him in on, what kind of influence do you have right now? What kind of threat do you have right now if, say, the Liberals in Atlantic Canada feel like you're a lock? Well, a marijuana advocate in Atlantic Canada, as far as the Liberal Party is concerned right now, is a lock. You're, where are you going to go? And that's a terrible, terrible dynamic. And I don't, I don't put that just on the Liberals. That happens to parties when they get in power all over the place. And so having that ability to say, my, my vote is mobile. This thing moves, and I move on the issue that I voted you in on. I expect you to fulfill your promise. Accountability is really, really important. And it has taken huge hits through all the scandals over the years, through all the bad governance. And it's time for us to bring it back. And I think a voting system that is much more nimble, where voters can move and address their loyalties based on their issues, not on just where they happen to live, is a huge leap forward. And it's one of the reasons we're seeing some hesitation right now from the governing party, even though they have a pretty ironclad promise to change the system at the committee that we're studying this. They've, they keep slipping over. They, they, oh, maybe the current system is more stable. Maybe the current system is a good tradition. The tradition is good. I can see them starting to worry, and it's like, nope. Courage, my friend. <laughs> Courage. We, we know this is right. It, it may hurt in the short term, but it'll make us all better politicians and it'll make the system work for Canadians, which is the whole point of the exercise. Mm -hmm. And and I think my personal sort of uh, standing on my own soapbox here, I think that mm -hmm. oftentimes um, people see their ability to influence the political process rolls around every four years or in the mid to late 2000s every year. <laughs> and they're 
that they, that we think that we influence the political process by a single vote at a single ballot box every four years. And and I think it's the it's important for people to understand that real political change can happen in things that sound boring like committee meetings and town halls yeah. in church basements. And so uh, the next couple of years, I think, will be pretty transformational that if we're able to get something like democratic reform through, it's going to take a lot of work. But if we're not able to, it could be an issue that gets kicked down the road another five or ten years. Well, this is it. And I think we have to speak truth to the lie. And the lie that folks want you to believe is that you only matter in that 60 seconds you're in the the voting station and that you you only matter when we say you matter. And I think, I mean, whenever this committee runs, I've seen it starting to trend on Twitter. I see it hitting huge social media buzz. And this, this is also this notion that this is way too academic an exercise for people to understand. And I totally disagree. I think people get it and know it's important. We just got to talk to more people about it. Yeah. Well, uh, I just wanted to say a huge thank you for spending the time to chat with us today and to give us some insight on, on what's happening with our, our political process and, and how individuals can have an impact on this. We, we really appreciate your time. Hey, my pleasure. It was really great talking with you. Okay, take care. Bye, Sean. Energy Voices, I'm very excited to welcome Edward Cameron, who's the Policy Director for We Mean Business and the Managing Director of Business for Social Responsibility. So welcome to the show, Edward. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. And the, the reason we wanted to have you on the show is that you spend uh, your career and your time working on how business can make an impact and how business can be change agents in this world of social responsibility and environmentalism and climate change. Uh, and, and that's something that seems a little bit abstract to some people, that they, they often think of uh, politicians and policymakers as being the ones that are responsible for enacting change uh, and, and being the ones to drive change on some of these social and environmental issues. And so I want to get into how that process happens, but maybe for some context for our listeners, can you give us first the <clears throat> the overview on what We Mean Business is as an organization? Why was it set up and, and what is the purpose and focus of We Mean Business? Yeah, certainly. So We Mean Business is a collaboration amongst seven business-facing partner organizations. These are organizations that work with thousands of the world's leading companies across multiple industrial sectors to advance sustainability, not just environmental sustainability, but the full range of sustainability issues from the very local and social to the very global and environmental and everything in between. And the reason why We Mean Business was established was, first and foremost, to capitalize on a very important moment. And that was the moment uh, signified by the coming together of global governments in Paris last December to agree a new international treaty on climate change. That particular moment focused the concentration of the world on climate as a risk, but also on the need to create a regulatory environment going forward to not only address climate change, but to create a pathway to equitable access for sustainable development for all. And as a consequence, we knew that in order to make that happen, we needed more than just governments involved. We needed all stakeholders, academia, civil society, faith-based organizations, trade unions, indigenous peoples, and so on and so forth. But we also needed the active engagement of the private sector. Mm. And the theory of change was that for many, many decades, the private sector had either been hostile to movement towards addressing climate change, or for the most part, had sat on the fence and had waited to see which way governments would would go. And we decided that we needed to change that dynamic. We needed companies to be very actively engaged in a number of ways. First and foremost, 
they needed to be actively engaged in changing the conversation around climate change so that it was no longer simply about sharing the burden of greenhouse gas emissions reduction, but that it was much more about the economic opportunity you could seize by acting on climate change, the reputational benefit you could glean as a brand by acting on climate change, the ways in which you could increase uh, worker recruitment and retention by putting in place climate policies and making yourself a purpose-driven company, the way in which you could glean uh, efficiencies, operational efficiencies, financial efficiencies as a consequence of tackling climate change. So we began to change the conversation so that today companies are talking about the transition to a low-carbon economy as being something that is of benefit to them as opposed to a regulatory obligation. And, and what the second you, thing we wanted oh, to do... Yeah, I was just going to say, what do you think it was that led to that shift? So you talk about the... We sort of had a 20-year history of, of people largely sitting on the sidelines, as you mentioned, and and, and you bring up this, this idea now that companies are recognizing the economic opportunity of participating in a low-carbon economy, but that shift doesn't just happen instantaneously. What, what was it that got major Tier 1 corporations on board with this idea that it's in their best interest to participate? I think it's a number of drivers, and they're weighted differently depending on the sector or company. So a very important driver is obviously an understanding of exposure to climate risk. If you're a food, beverage and agriculture company, for example, you're keenly aware that climate change and the associated change in water patterns, the temperature variability between night and day, the increase in global temperatures, the change in soil fertility, the disruption to transport and logistics, that all of this fundamentally undermines your business. And consequently, addressing climate change becomes essential to your risk management strategy as a company. So that understanding of risk is very important. A second important driver is demand, sometimes demand coming from investors. There's a great rise, for example, in shareholder activism over the course of the last five years, where more and more shareholders are asking companies to disclose their climate risk and to disclose the strategies they're undertaking to tackle climate change. There's demand coming from consumers. There's demand coming from the various companies that you might engage with throughout your supply chain to act on this. And, of course, there's growing regulatory pressure, uh, mostly uh, historically at the domestic level from national laws, but now, of course, as a consequence of what's happening with the Paris Agreement, a global level playing field when it comes to regulatory policy on climate. So I think it's risk, it's demand, and then there's a third element, which is that the the economic argument in favor of, of climate action has just shifted. Renewable energies now are more cost competitive with fossil fuels than they have been before. The types of technologies you need to deploy as a company in order to be carbon friendly are more available and at a better price point than they were before. The availability of capital as a result of financial services vehicles and financial services companies mobilizing money in support of a transition to a low carbon economy is there in ways that it has never been before. And the ability to generate an internal rate of return or a return on investment when you invest in low carbon technologies is greater than it's been before. So I think it's a it's a coming together of factors that different companies in different sectors weigh in different in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all led to this particular moment. Uh, and now, possibly the most important uh, driver is the growth of company activity becomes uh, peer pressure for other companies who have not yet made the leap to go low carbon. The more of your peers that begin to act 
the more pressing it becomes for you to act as well. One of your uh, advisor board members being King Fisher, um, that's a very uh, sort of tangible example that I think often gets lost is the the people are looking for these sorts of silver bullet solutions or blanket solutions that will sort of unilaterally solve a lot of our problems. And, and I like the, the sort of conversation around how there's a lot of sort of compromise and understanding required. Um, it, it, does that ever lead to frustration though? Do you ever feel like that you lose out on the ability for more impactful recommendations or more impactful policy um, because of a single entity? Uh, is there ever that lowest common denominator factor that comes into play? I think it comes into play more broadly in the issue around climate change. I have yet to see it come into play within our work as a coalition precisely because we do not constrain ourselves by giving a veto to anybody on the work that we do. So we don't allow ourselves to be pulled down to the lowest common denominator. We very much work with companies who are either leaders in their field or willing to learn how to become leaders. We also increasingly um, work with what one of my colleagues calls the persuadable middle. But there are obviously a a number of countries and a number of companies who are fundamentally threatened by the idea of reducing emissions and tackling climate change. If we were to concentrate all of our attention on them, we would be pulled down to the lowest common denominator conversation. But but we don't do that. Our view is that what you need is a critical mass of governments and companies who are willing to be ambitious, who are willing to blaze a trail, and by so doing will give confidence to themselves to progressively raise their ambition. But they'll also give confidence to a vast array of other countries and governments that it is possible to align um, climate ambition with profit and with development. And once that critical mass happens and once that confidence begins to generate, those countries and those companies that are laggards, they quickly find themselves becoming very, very isolated amongst their peers in industry, in the eyes of government, but also in the eyes of shareholders and investors and consumers and people within the supply chain. And as a consequence, they also then begin to act. So I actually think that it's a it's a poor theory of change that allows your work to be taken hostage by by lowest common denominator thinking or lowest common denominator actors. You've you've really got to start with a vision of success. You've got to start with an an ambitious starting point. You've got to push for that. Um, And I think that that ultimately yields results, and that's been our experience anyway. Yeah, and I love the approach of uh, sort of trying to find and celebrate the champions and the ones that are willing to, to sort of be trailblazers in the field. I think you've seen with examples like old power in the United States where it's that comparison against one's neighbor um, that, that can actually lead to fundamental behavioral change and the idea of working with sort of leaders within a particular industry uh, or particular governments and, and sort of focusing on the champions um, who can then drag along the remaining uh, folks within an industry, I think is really powerful and is is different than this idea that every single person needs to agree on every single approach to this, this sort of problem. And so um, I just want to commend on the approach of really focusing on being ambitious and bold as opposed to uh, just sort of allowing that sort of traditional approach to these sorts of conversations take place. I would also say maybe something that would be um, beneficial to your leaders, uh, to your listeners, I should say, is is that there's also a temperamental um, aspect to this. Uh, I've worked on climate change for 21 years now, and I started my work on climate change expecting to find a number of heroes and a number of villains. And I expected that I would need to try and battle and defeat the villains. And what I've realized over the course of 21 years is that 
the vast majority of people, whether in government or companies, would like to take the steps to be more sustainable, but they're facing very legitimate challenges and constraints. And the more time you take to understand those challenges and constraints, and the more time you take to build pathways for them to overcome those challenges, the more chance you have of actually getting them on board and turning them into the next set of leaders, the next vanguard. And and that's been something that's been, I think, temperamentally baked into our theory of change from the very beginning. We're not looking for heretics. We're not looking for people to criticize. We're looking for converts. We're looking for leaders. Um, And that's a very, very important part of our DNA, I think. We really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us today and give us a bit of background. Thank you very much. Take care, Edward. brings to an end another month's episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins.